Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health/dave for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that more than 17.4 million Americans are food insecure. It means they have limited access to adequate food and nutrition because of price or geography. And only about 6.9 million Americans are food secure. And those come from a, a real data source, but I got to wonder, what about the other people who are not food insecure and food secure? Because we have like 300 million people here and we only have 6.9 and 17.4. So there must be a big middle of people that are like food-ish, insecure-ish. But whatever it is, there are giant numbers of people who live nowhere near a grocery store that even has fresh vegetables. So like seeing an apple versus a can of applesauce is a rare occurrence. And that's pretty scary. Today's guest is Gunnar Loveless, who's a social good serial entrepreneur who founded Love Heals, a conscious jewelry company that funded the planting of one and a half million trees and sponsored 500,000 malnourished children. And he's currently the co-CEO of Thrive Market, which is an online wholesale buying club whose mission is to make natural and organic eating more affordable for everyone. Uh, he's also a bioactivist. Gunnar, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Love your work and excited to be on the show. 
likewise, we've had a chance to meet in person lots of times and uh, we're, we're supporters of each other's companies. And uh, uh, so it's, it's a, an honor to get to have you on the show. Your story is is pretty unique. It's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on. It is you know you're you're a high performance entrepreneur, and I want to pick your brain about what you're doing with your mission for healthy food, and I also want to pick your brain about what you do for your own biology to support it. So, kind of two directions that our listeners would be interested in. Put put me to work. I'm I'm at your service. All right. One of the things that that surely affects your decision to start Thrive Markets is that you were raised by a single Latino mom. You lived here illegally in the U.S. for eight years. Yeah. And your mom wanted to feed you really healthy as well as she could. But, I mean, let's face it, finances, no matter where you are, food costs money, right? And healthy food costs more money right now. So when you were a kid, you, you maybe didn't have enough of that. Did, did that shape your your view of the world did that shape why you decided to yeah. start thrive why you fed fifty thousand people absolutely i mean it's okay. it's uh you know growing up really poor and seeing how hard she struggled to make healthy choices was uh a primary impulse for me in why we started the business and you know there were there were months at a time where we we lived off of rice because that's all we could afford um and so it's you know it's it's uh it's been a lifelong interest of mine uh, and, you know, one of the things that I was really fortunate with is that, you know, in spite of our financial adversity, my mother was well-educated. So she did know that eating healthy was really important. And so she made a lot of choices that uh, prioritized that opportunity, um, it, even though she was struggling financially. And so that, that, you know, when she remarried, my stepfather was running a food co-op, which we still run today. And so we got exposed to a group buying model through a food co-op, um, and that was really uh, how how the genesis of Thrive came about was seeing a twenty first century. You know, how do we build a twenty first century co-op? I think there are probably a good number of people listening right now who don't actually know what a food co-op is. Yeah. So if you grew up granola, you know, and if you didn't, you you might have never been in one, or if you've been in one, you just thought it was a grocery store. Can you walk me through what is the difference between a food co-op and you know, a hippie grocery store. Yeah. So a food co-op is a membership store out of a retail location where people pay an annual membership fee to be able to access. Uh, typically they get some kind of discounted pricing when they make purchases at the, co- the, the health food store. So they typically run as kind of like a hybrid health food store slash membership community. So people that are members get slightly better pricing. Uh, and for me, I think when I've thought about health and wellness, uh, and I think y- you guys see this the same way, is how do we strip out the hippiness but keep the heart and soul so that we can reach uh, millions of new Americans that want to access healthy living for the first time? And I think that's, that's our mission as a business is to you know, really transcend the ideologies and really reach people everywhere. Uh, and so that's, you know, but having that personal experience growing up with a food co-op uh, and seeing the impact it had uh, in building community with people and uh, making it you know more affordable for people, I always felt like there's got to be a way to do something like that online for the 21st century. It's really a, a, a tough situation when I, I look back at, at what happened when I was a kid that helped me to form why I'm doing Bulletproof. For me, my parents also wanted me to eat healthy. Like we weren't desperately poor by a long shot. We weren't uh, stupendously wealthy either. I, I would say just middle class. But for me, that, that meant liquid squeezed margarine and like low fat right. uh, grape nuts and, and all right. sorts of just horrible crap 
that was right. that was toxic for my biology. And today, now we still have this this idea where okay, we're, I'm going to quote eat healthy. And like you seem like you're pretty fortunate. Your your mom uh, had financial limited resources, but she had some reasonable knowledge where she actually succeeded right. in feeding you healthy. Maybe because she was. She was feeding you maybe more the way her parents ate and less the way whatever the current magazine of the 1980s told you to eat, which was desperately wrong in almost every direction. Right. Right. So for me, I'm like, all right, I was obese as a teenager. I have stretch marks still that I haven't figured out how to hack and, uh, you know, grew up with, with all sorts of autoimmune things, just, just issues that were caused by these things. So I'm like, all right, I want to do it right. And, and that's one of the things for me. I'm like, it's not that hard when you get the rules right. For you, you're like, it's not that expensive when you get the rules right. But how do you use your business to help people eat the right stuff versus just stuff that's labeled as healthy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the the big that's the big important question. And I don't I wouldn't claim to have an exactly right answer to that. I think sure. it's it's an ongoing, evolving question that gets answered a lot of different ways to different communities. Um, I think for us, the way we've constructed our model is that you know, instead of making the traditional retail markup that uh, people pay when they go to a health food store, we pass all of those savings along to our members through $60 a year. And it's like you know, Whole Foods meets Costco. Um, and then for every paid membership, we give a membership away to a family in need. So if you can't afford the $60 to get access to wholesale prices, uh, to have you know, healthy products shipped to your home wherever you are, you can still get a free membership through our giving program. And that's, you know, that's one way we do it. You know, we also invest in educational content. So we just shot a video course with 22 videos, which is like how to read a label and how do carbs turn into sugar and why you should care about toxic ingredients in your cleaning supplies and just basic stuff that you and I know and most of the listeners know. But, you know, Americans, a lot of people just don't know this information. And, uh, and so, you know, education, when we think about access and making healthy living accessible to everybody – we see it as a function of price, geography, and education. So selling previously premium products for less geography and that we ship it to people wherever they are, if they're in a food desert. Um, and then education in terms of providing content that helps people understand why they should care about these issues and doing it in a way that informs and inspires them. And I think, you know, to your lead in on, on the fact, you know, there's 43 million Americans on food stamps as an example, and the largest source of calories for them is soda. And, you know, we know what that's doing to their bodies. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's diet soda. They don't even get calories for it. And it does worse (laughs) things to their bodies. Like, man, that that's a losing proposition in every way. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Let me ask a hard question. I don't know the answer to this because I haven't dug around on the thrive website. Um, do you guys sell anything with sucralose in it? Uh, I don't think we do. Uh, Would you? I, 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 I no, no. I mean, if I find, I'll, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go dig around myself. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, you know, four thousand products. It's hard to like vet everything sure. personally, but um, yeah, I, I'll definitely check on that. I mean, we have a very, very stringent guidelines. Um, you know, we're the largest retail in the country that sells only non-GMO foods. Right. At this that was point. my next question was, was what, what's your deal? So no GMO. What about canola oil? Do you allow that? Yeah, there's canola oil. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's it's, it's such non-GMO. a slippery slope, right? I, I know. I know. I know. I mean, the thing is, so, so the way we've approached it is, um, you know, we've, we've, instead of trying to be the most outrageous Puritans, yeah. um, we've really taken a big tent approach. And, you know, if that means that, um, you know, people are going to buy healthy marshmallows, from, healthier marshmallows, yeah. um, 
and that's you know what's going to motivate them to get into the ecosystem. We probably will we'll choose to sell some marshmallows that are not filled with toxins and preservatives. Um, obviously, they're sugary content, um, and and then then we have an opportunity to be able to have a, a larger conversation with them. That isn't necessarily you, my, the right decision, but it, it is. It, it's it's one strategy. My kids love s'mores. Like we, there's a fire pit right behind the camera here. We built it. The kids absolutely not a roast marshmallows. Are they allowed to eat ten of them? No. Do they get two organic marshmallows with the bulletproof chocolate? And yeah. actually, I put it on a Mary's Gone Cracker. You guys probably sell Mary's Crackers, right? Oh yeah. There you go. So I actually don't really like the Mary's Cracker taste, but they're kids. That they that's what a s'more is to them. They don't know what graham crackers taste like, and I'm okay right. with that. Right. Right. And so that that kind of perspective, like, all right. You're going to do something that isn't perfect, but does that mean you're going to like slather it with like cyanide and glyphosate and lead right. and mercury and then eat it? Right. No, you, right. you do the least harmful thing. And, and I, I totally support that. Like, like yeah. that's why the whole thing I do is it's all on a spectrum. Like yeah. this is really crappy and you shouldn't ever eat that. This is like not that good for you, but like you'll probably survive and you can overcome. And right. this is probably good for you. And, and if I totally support your big tent approach there, because honestly, you're going to eat canola oil. Eat the non-GMO canola oil. It was a win for the day. Like you did one thing better, right? right. So, hey, you know, and and our uh, our shared friend, you know, Dr. Mark Hyman. One of the great aha moments for me in this journey a couple of years ago when we first met him, uh, he was presenting at uh, at Saddleback Church, which was the largest mega church yeah. in the country. <laughs> uh, you know, designed a meal plan with Pastor Rick Warren. And there were thousands of people in the audience, and uh, it was syndicating live to hundreds of churches. And, you know, he's there talking about avocado, uh, cacao pudding, and quinoa and coconut oil to a very mainstream <laughs> conservative audience. And I was just floored at um, how mainstream this conversation is going yeah. now. And I think that's really exciting. Health and wellness transcends ideology. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, what you believe. Everybody wants to feel good in their bodies and everybody wants the same thing for their children. And so we're, you and I are in the business of helping people get healthy. So, so now what percentage of the Thrive customer base is organic preppers? Organic what? Preppers. Preppers. Uh, what, what's you know, like there's a TV show called Preppers, you know, that people who are like preparing for disaster. So they're like stockpiling, you know, oh. like for the, like, I, I'm just wondering because like you guys sell in bulk. I think it's, I think it's pretty small. <laughs> we, actually, but, we don't do that much bulk. It's everyday but, sizes. It's everyday size, but, but but the reason I'm asking that it, it's a little bit humor, but it's also like like look that most preppers tend to be relatively conservative, but it doesn't matter. Like you want organic food, and if you wanted to plan to eat for a year without having to go to the grocery store, which is actually not a bad idea to be able to to be prepared for that. At least several months of food uh, for emergency yeah. supplies is is prudent, I would say. At least yeah. if you understand our food supply, it's prudent, and. Um, if if you do decide to do that, do you want to like stockpile you know genetically modified corn malt and you'll just eat that with a spoon, or do you want to have like good food? Right, and, and totally. If, if you have good food, then cost becomes important, and then you have to eat from what you you have on hand. So then bulk buying or just cost effective buying, it's not even bulk. Uh, it, it becomes terribly important. So I, I imagine that you have some some people there, but like you said, it transcends all ideologies. So it doesn't matter if you're doing it because you want to be you know, gentle to Mother Earth or because you think an apocalypse is coming. You still want food that makes you feel good, right? And, and yeah. that's why everyone cares about it. So Yeah, it plays to people's self-interest in such yeah. a powerful way. And as we know, it benefits them, their communities, the economy with $300 billion a year spent on 
you know, lifestyle diseases like diabetes every year and, and the environment shifting from toxic conventional supply chains to organic and regenerative. So I think it's a, for me, it's such a gratifying organizing principle to be part of. And, uh, and I'm grateful to be collaborating with you on it. Talk to me a little bit about what you do to support uh, farmers. Like what, yeah. how does Thrive work with, with the supply chain? I, I'm really interested in how you do that. So, so what kind of farms do you work with? And like, like what's your relationship there with the food producers themselves? So we're just starting to get into that. Um, but you know, we're doing a push into private label on products where we lose money, but we know we have to provide them to our community um, or we have low margins. So, you know, for example, uh, you know, coconut oil. So, you know, that's an area where we needed to get more margin on the product. Uh, we went to our primary partner and, you know, he's got, uh, you know, a fantastic fair trade ethical supply chain in Sri Lanka and Southeast Asia. And we were very, very careful about, you know, looking at their supply chain. And, and then we really tell that story to our community. You know, what, what's happening now is that consumers are waking up to the fact that they want to vote with their dollars and they really value transparency. Yes, they want to get you know, great products at a great price, but they also want to you know, believe and support in things that align with their values. And so our ability to you know, do the work and you know, really make sure that we're working with ethical supply chains and then be able to share the details of that with our community creates a level of resonance and education um, that's differentiated than a traditional retail environment. I think that's really important. I, I read some things about uh, regenerative farming and and carbon farming. I, are you are you doing specific things to support products that come from carbon neutral farming or even things that are are banking? Yeah, carbon? so so th- so that's a new. I mean, the whole regenerative farming movement in general is is amazing, and a lot of studies coming out showing it's the fastest way to sequester carbon and produce truly nutrient dense food. Uh, create great jobs. I mean, I, I, I'm on the board of a, a local regenerative agriculture nonprofit and you help raise the money for them. And I think it's a really exciting area for the American economy in general, um, for all the reasons I listed. Uh, you know, it's very, very new in terms of the supply chain. Uh, and so farmers are just starting to, uh, you know, there's all sorts of questions about how do they do labeling and standards. And, and so there's, there's not a lot that we've been able to do uh, around that, uh, actually in our supply chain, but we're having those conversations every week, every month with our partners, our co-packers, uh, our vendors, uh, and really working to encourage them either to move towards those practices or selecting vendors where they can handle the scale of volume that we need. And part of the challenge is you can get really small farmers that can handle a small amount of volume, but because we're, you know, selling, you know, twenty to fifty thousand units of a skew per month. Now, the level of volume that we need in a partner is differentiated, and so it's it's you know it's that's part of the part of the cart horse issue. And we're excited about investing in farms long term to really make that uh, a whole picture. I saw an interview with the, the head buyer for Walmart a while back, and this was maybe four years ago. And and whoever it was, I, I don't remember the person's name or even whether it was a man or woman, it was, it was a, a thing I read. And, and they said, look, I would love to put organic cotton in, in every product sold at Walmart. There's just this little problem. There isn't that much organic cotton produced on, on the surface of the planet. If we had access to every piece of organic cotton, we couldn't do it. That's right. So we don't do it. Are you going to run into that scale where, yeah, everyone wants uh, yeah. organic blueberries, but there just aren't enough organic blueberries? 
Yeah, we, I mean, we already deal with it. And, and actually, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about um, is that there's a need for a transition label. The challenge with uh, organic certification is that it's a three-year process. It's really expensive, and it's really impacting our ability to meet the yeah. demand. Uh, and so now we're forced as an economy to import massive amounts of organic produce and food from countries like China and, and, and South America, with, which you got the whole carbon impact of shipping that and all the supply, other types of supply chains. And so I think there's a, a real opportunity for us to come up with another label that yeah. it, it doesn't mean you're not you're not applying chemicals or fertilizers to it, um, and it has the same guidelines as organic. But people know it's it's a transitional label. It it's really tough. the The plantations that I work with for the bulletproof coffee beans, they've never been sprayed. They never will be sprayed. They, they've been owned by the same families for a long time, and it would take more than one year's worth of profits to pay for the organic certification. And so right. for small farmers, organic certification is like you have to have a separate job in order to do it. My small farm where I live, I, I'm on 32 acres and we're putting it into production for the first time. So it's relatively simple to get organic certification because it hasn't been productive farmland. But even then, I almost put asphalt paving on the road coming in, which would have killed my organic certification. Like how many places don't have asphalt roads? Well, that, that would have, that would, because there's a petroleum thing that's involved with that. So right. now I have a dirt driveway still. I, I don't know, maybe we'll put gravel on it. But, but these little things, people who eat food, it's organic or it's not organic, but oh, it's organic from China. You're like, well, we have no idea whether those were enforced in China or Mexico. And we have no idea how long that food sat, how fresh it is, but at least it was organic. So I, I fully support that. Like, like this is at least small farmer based, uh, non-GMO. Like there's a variety of, of things. And and what you get down to is farming is a system. It's a whole set of practices with thousands of decision points. And like, how do you know that the majority of them were done in, in such a way as to support the world and support the people who eat the food? And man, that, that is a tough standard to, to make and to enforce. I, I support that effort, but <laughs> it's going to yeah, take a while. I think it will, but I, I think there's a real opportunity there. Uh, and I, I, think it could, I think it could be done um, in a thoughtful way that would make really expand access and, and production uh, pretty quickly. Where I live uh, up here on Vancouver Island, I've seen a few of the local grocery stores actually purchasing farmland yeah. where they're going either into partnership or just outright purchasing it and saying, look, we need access to high quality organic local vegetables. We've got to guarantee access. We're serving our communities and buying from a farmer doesn't guarantee that we'll have what we want. So we might as well just, just do this. Uh, are you going to buy a bunch of farmland and play a bunch of farmers and basically a vertically integrated thing? I mean, I think that's, that's, it's funny. I was just talking to some of our investors yesterday about yeah. that. So it's, it's, for us, it's a sequencing issue. Um, so, but there's a very real likelihood in the next two or three years, we'll end up vertically integrating and then building really showcase regenerative farms. Yeah. I'm, I'm considering the same thing with coffee because I, I mean, I, I, uh, I would want to work with the people I work with now, but I just want to make sure that, that everything is done right. And right now I, I know that cause I have my lab testing at the end of the process, but it, if there was an opportunity to partner more with the, the growers or to even work uh, directly with a plantation for long-term, like, look, if your name's going to go on the label, 
like it, it better be done right and not just right. mostly right either like it's right. it, either it, it, and it, and the majors the are doing this i mean i just saw an article yeah. yesterday uh you know costco just helped a farmer in san diego buy 1200 acres uh across the border in mexico to to launch a big organic farm and costco funded it um precisely for this issue you know it's one of the fastest growing segments of costco's business is organic food and and they have the same issue you know they're at enormous enormous scale and they can't get their hands on the product. So this is a problem now that's systemic. Um, the good news is it creates demand, uh, and there is a bottleneck with the certification process, but uh, you know, the, the, the market is going to have its effect, and uh, there's going to be a lot of solutions that come up in the next five to 10 years that meet that demand. So it, it'll be really interesting too, though, like, like what happens, let's say, with a, a membership model like Costco or, or with Thrive, let's say. So then... Uh, it uh, let's let's put on our, our futurist hat. In ten years from now, Thrive is you know this ginormous multi billion dollar thing, and let, let's say you have access, uh, we'll say control of of ten percent of America's cropland. That, that's 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 a that's a big number, but okay, I'm, whatever. I'm, 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 I'm making play, up these numbers, play, right? Play, play but but we'll say a meaningful percentage of, of this yeah. stuff. It's it's very different in, in a world like that. Where let, let's say Walmart has this slice, Costco has this slice, Thrive has this slice, uh, and you know Safeway has this slice, and, and you know whatever Amazon has this other slice. So, like who knows what the future looks like? But but essentially, there's a series of big companies, um, some nicer than others, <laughs> who uh, um, who are are now vertically integrating in, into this thing. Um, what? What happens with with the control of the food supply then with with things like you know small farmers like like where do they fit into that ecosystem and what what do you think will happen with with the vertical integration like like what's the best model for that when when you you think about this like going out more than five years? I mean, I think I mean I don't think we have to own farms specifically. Right. I think that there's ways for us to be supportive to farmers uh, in a way that uh, gives us the, the stability and guarantee of output while you know not being uh, you know, intensely hierarchical in a way that's destructive to fall, small farmers. Um, and, you know, even like on the regenerative agriculture piece, one of the things that I've been talking about with the board there is, you know, we need to create free educational toolkits that are like turnkey for farmers that depend upon, you know, one of the seven major biozones that you would have in the U.S. And you could just follow these free turnkey programs, how to convert your farm into a regenerative farm and it gives people step-by-step educational content that helps them do that. And so I think there's a lot of ways that we can be very beneficial in the ecosystem, particularly as we get scale and the amount of money it takes for us to have a tremendous impact for people uh, starts to be a smaller and smarter, smaller part of our overall revenue base. Um, and so I think we're going to be able to leverage that in really dynamic ways. So some of the things that, that a lot of people don't know, I, I saw this shocking statistic, like 90% of small farmers have a day job. <laughs> they, they cannot put food on their table uh, by farming. They can put, actually, that's, that's not true. They can put food on their table. They just can't put money in their bank account with small farming. Even if they go to the local farmer's market on weekends and all that, they're, they're not quite making ends meet. And the amount of work, oh my God, like, like some of our family friends, they're on a, a five acre farm, which was, is plenty big enough uh, to, to grow way more food than you could ever eat in a, in a fertile valley like where we live. And um, even with, with you know, feeding a, a couple cows and, and raising everything, it, it's just 
16 hour a day, just just huge amounts of labor. And at the end of the day, by the time you paid for animal food and you did all that stuff, it's like break even. And yeah. uh, to the point they're thinking about shutting the farm down uh, be, because they just can't do it. And, and I, I think most people would say, oh, I'm, eating, I'm, supporting, I'm supporting small farmers. And they go to the farmer's market and they try to negotiate for a dollar off. <laughs> that might have been the only dollar of profit that was out there. Right, right. Do you think that, that Thrive and, and what you're doing with Thrive might have the power to change that, like, like to make it easier or make it more profitable? or, or like, like with these I mean, the, be- the, be- the beautiful thing about our model is that we cut out all the, the middlemen in the, yeah. the supply chain, right? So that allows us to work with partners where they can actually make more money working with us. It's simpler. It's easier. We can tell their story in a really beautiful way with our content and recipes and videos, talk about their supply chain, and they can make you know, more money and still pass savings along to our members. And so you know, when, you, when you think about a traditional supply chain, there's the, the grower, the manufacturer, the brokers, the distributors, the slotting fees, the retail games, the pay-to-play, uh, all the stuff that happens in shelf space and play-to-play games. And by being able to cut all of that out, and go direct to consumer to our members with a really efficient supply chain, we're actually able to pay more to our partners and pass the savings along to our members. And it's it's a win-win-win for everybody. Most people listening to this don't know about the incredibly complex and Byzantine grocery supply chain. If a product costs a dollar at the register, can you walk through who gets what percentage of that dollar for the average product that you might sell and thrive? I mean, it really depends on the product and the product category. But let's say let's say something costs ten dollars because that's an easier one. Sure, so if sure. it's if it's ten dollars, the actual uh, brand that actually manufactures that, not even the farmer, but just the brand, uh, you know, depending upon the margin and what type of product they're selling, they'll be lucky if they get three to five dollars of that ten that's sold at retail. And then the rest of that five to seven dollars goes to uh, the brokers, the distributors, and the retail player, and all the retail uh, play-to-play games that happen on the shelf space. So, so people listening to this right now, think about that number. So, if you spent ten dollars, the person who manufactured and, and produced that product got three dollars of that ten dollars, and the rest of it went to inefficiencies in the supply chain. That's right. And, and that's why when you, when you go with something like like e-commerce, you're like like you're you're basically taking that seven dollars and and you're redistributing it in a different way. But on the other hand, if you go to Whole Foods and you you have access to fresh stuff that you might not be able to get online, and you have access to a whole suite of products that are are generally hard to get in one place. So it, it's it's an interesting conundrum because like like what's the cost of convenience? And do you really care if the if the producer of that product got three dollars or, or four dollars? My take on that is actually you should care whether the producer gets three or four dollars because if you're dealing with an ethical producer, they're going to make better products versus squeezing every last nickel out. And I find there's there's two types of consumers out there. At least when I'm working on the bulletproof side, there's what I call like the mercenaries, and they're like, I want to eat the cheapest food possible. Right and and like like to that mindset, it's uh, it's almost like a a victory to squeeze a nickel out of the, the the food that they're eating. And then there's other people who say, look, I want to eat the highest quality food first, that is most affordable second. 
And, and I'm in that category, right? Like I, I want food that makes me feel amazing. I'm willing to pay more for it, but I don't want to pay a lot more for it. But that, that extra value I'm getting, like I'll pay for quality. And if I was starving, I wouldn't, I wouldn't pay for quality. Except even then, if you have only a dollar to spend on this meal, you're going to buy the highest quality meal you can spend, you can get for a dollar. You just, you'll always do that. But when you have more than a dollar, are you willing to spend a dollar ten? How do you, how do you differentiate between like, like the mercenary, like I want the very, very cheapest thing possible uh, versus I want the best thing possible? Like, like, how do you navigate that for consumers who come to Thrive? Like, like how do you guide them in that direction? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, what's cool is, uh, again, we're big tent, so we're happy to have both those consumers. Um, and because it's such a disintermediated supply chain where we've cut out the middlemen, we can you know, pay our brands more. Uh, we can uh, pass along really significant savings of 25 to 50% off these products to the members, and we can cover our costs so we break even on the products. Uh, and so you know, that plays to self-interest and whether or not you're you know really really scrounging and you're optimizing for every dollar or whether you're you know interested in the lifestyle and want to vote with your dollars and you're really interested in the absolute highest quality you still we can appeal to both of those consumers um and it's 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 really easy for us to to work with both of those and we work with a lot of other types of uh, consumers it's people that are in food deserts or people that aren't near yeah. a health food store to begin with or uh, you know, or they're, um, you know, in a low income neighborhood or they're a community of color or there's all sorts of, so we, we, we have a lot of different demographic groups that we interact with and support. And what's cool is like over half of half of our customer is in the South and the Midwest. It's not on, you know, like m- most people would think that our customer base is concentrated in California and New York. Um, and so what's really exciting for us as a business is that we're helping people access healthy food often for the first time because they can afford it. Our, our buyer, the person who's buying from us at Thrive, by and large, you know, is a, is a woman. She shops at Target or Kohl's. And she's accessing healthy food often for the first time because she can afford to do it and she wants to do it, but it's been out of her reach historically. Yeah, the, the, that's really helping people in, in a meaningful way. So I, I, I applaud that. I've been on lots of road trips and I, I, for a long time, I, I've eaten in a certain way because when I eat stuff that, that maybe other people tolerate better than I do, I, history of obesity and, and autoimmunity and all, this stuff's kryptonite. Like I eat it, I, I'm going to feel awful. I don't yeah. like to feel awful, especially yeah. when I'm driving across the country or something. So there's lots of times you, you, you're like, in this entire state, <laughs> there's only two places where I really wanted to find something to eat. Right. Uh, and. And that's not to say that that I, I feel like I'm being persnickety or something, but you're like, like, look, I don't know how you possibly deep fry a salad, but like every restaurant in this town deep fries their salads probably because they didn't have any fresh lettuce. I, I'm not joking, actually. That was in Scotland, not in the U.S. But uh, anyway, it, it's one of those things where you realize, okay, this isn't food in the way I define food because if I eat it, I'm going to feel crappy. And certainly I'm not going to perform it at my best level. And, and that's what I do every day. Having a shift like this that says, all right, even if you live in a town like that, now I can get the food that I want and it's affordable, that, that changes things in a way that having a, a Walmart downtown won't do. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think for us, one of the benchmarks that we try to really aim our business at is, you know, can we sell healthy alternatives at the same price or less than the conventional equivalent? So, you know, we sell a kind bar for the same price or less than a Snickers bar. We sell 70 loads of non-toxic laundry detergent 
for the same pro- for, for less than a big box retailer will sell 70 loads of laundry detergent with hormone and endocrine disruptors. And so, you know, for us, when we're looking at our catalog and how do we provide products, what we're, what we're trying to do is make the products equal in price to the conventional equivalent or less. And if we can do that, that's hyperscalable. But Gunnar, endocrine disruptors smell so fresh. Exactly. You know, (laughs) so so fresh and clean. I saw an ad uh, yesterday that I just I I can't say the name, obviously, but it was it was for one of the big CPG cleaning companies. And it was an ad uh, um, on a major site. And it said and it was touting as if it was like a big, exciting thing. It was made of 90 percent cleaning ingredients. And uh, and then under it says, uh, keep out of reach of children. And I was just like, what an odd ad. Like to think that that's even an effective ad to advertise that your cleaning products are made of 90% cleaning ingredients without even specifying what that even means. And then have this bold warning that you got to keep the cleaning product out of, out of reach of children. I was like, this is completely insane. Last time I checked, water was a cleaning ingredient. You're right. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. Right. Oh, uh, well, uh, we—it's amazing what people will buy. Uh, we, we've certainly we've certainly trained them that way. I, I, I want to shift gears a bit since we're talking about endocrine disruptors and uh, and hormones, things like that. When we've had dinner together, you talked about being a, a self-proclaimed hypochondriac. Uh, you know, you, you really are are monitoring what's going on with your biology. Like, what what do you do? Like, like what do you obsess about the most? Like, like where'd that come from? I think it's like you know deep survival fears you know growing up really poor and uh you know like you, we we inherit some of these thought forms sure. and patterns from our from our parents and you know my my mother is, was very very concerned all the time so you know it's it's uh I think we're all we're all confronted with uh our various uh neurotic uh intellectual conditioning that we you know all have very various flavors of it and and one of mine was is hypochondria uh, I'm I'm gratefully much better uh, than I used to be, but I used to just obsess about cancer and heart disease. You know, as a teenager, yeah. you know, I would just be like, uh, you know, I'd feel a lump under my lymph node. I'd be like, you know, for months, completely terrified that I, I wow. was, you know, finally, finally, uh, finally going to die of, of, of lymphatic cancer. You know, 13 year old boy. Um, so that like that kind of uh, yeah. you know, um, that's true uh, hypochondria. Okay, cool. True, yeah, 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 yeah. Full 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 blown. Um, and, um, you know, at the same time though, that led me into, uh, understanding and pursuing information about health and wellness, um, in, in a powerful way. And it led me to, uh, having to look at other types of interpersonal skills, um, and development. So looking at fear and what's the root of the fear and having a, you know, really honest conversation with oneself about where that arises from and, and so I, you know, I've been, I'm, it's been like a, a, a both a blessing and a curse. Um, and I know you can, you can understand that one with your own journey. And, and I think, you know, yeah. those are, we're all confronted with those in different ways. Um, and none of us are all that unique in the fact that we all have our mixed bag of, of cards that we, we, that make us who we are. It's funny. I used to wonder if I was a hypochondriac, like, especially like, like back in, you know, 1992, people are like, you're a hypochondriac. I'm like, actually, no, I, I just feel shitty. <laughs> like there's a difference. <laughs> and, and like in my case, I actually did have autoimmune stuff and I'm like, I am kind of fat. <laughs> so like, okay, it turns out there was a connection between what I ate and what I did and, and right. whether or not I got a sinus infection or right. again, or, or one of those things. 
but like you said, it, it's a curse, but also it, it means that, that you have a, a, a very survival-based motivation that says, I'm going to learn about this stuff. I'm going to get it right uh, because it, whether it's perceived threat or an actual threat, like, like I'm going to own this stuff because I don't want to walk around with that hanging over my head. Yeah, I think I think you know, and and I know for me, and I know in your work, like your work is really uh, vulnerably and honestly sharing the depths of your personal challenges. And I think that as we as we move through uh, those challenges that we're all dealt with, we actually become better human beings. And uh, as we're able to be honest about uh, our ability to uh, move through these things and still be affected by them periodically. Uh, it inspires other people to confront their own challenges at a very profound level. Uh, and I think, you know, I think, you know, uh, you know, I used to be overweight as a teenager too. And for me, I wasn't, it wasn't like the physiological, um, type of the autoimmune stuff that you were up against. I was depressed mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know, that's the other part of, uh, of obesity and being overweight is there's a, there's an emotional component to it. And, a lot of it's the type of food we're eating, but it's also a lot of people feel hopeless in their lives or they're depressed or there's emotional issues that are unresolved. And so I think, I think there's such, a, um, you know, such an amazing conversation for us to have now about these issues holistically um, and food and lifestyle is a critical part of it. But then also the, you know, really getting access to the tools that give us a way to empower ourselves from the traditional fears and beliefs that we've been con- been conditioned with. It, it, a lot of that programming you get in the first seven years, it, it yeah. runs in there. You, you think it's you think that programming is actually your personality, and and it's it's not. Right. And that knowledge, that model, it, it isn't taught in school. It, they don't teach you that in, at college. So you sort of go through this whole education process, and you come out of it, and you're you're just as programmed as you were <laughs> before. And then or you have to. So. Yeah, maybe more so. And then you have to sit down and go, all right, like, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, I've found that for most people, you, you need to hit a pretty bad place yeah. in order to take a look at it. Otherwise, like, you, you can live a relatively okay life, fully programmed, and, and right. it's, it's a life of mediocrity, so right. to speak. But if you basically hit a wall along the way... You'll probably have to look around a little bit it's, more. It's, it's desperation, right? You get yeah. we get backed into a corner, and yeah. uh, we either are going to work through it, or we literally won't survive. And uh, and you know, I think a lot of people can relate to that desperation. And uh, and I think that it's you know, I think it's one of the things that's driving people to so passionately vote with their dollars and try to understand you know, uh, companies that support their values and, uh, it's, you know, the, the personal development movement. I mean, there's so many aspects to it that I think, you know, as the dark is dark, the light is light and people want to empower themselves in a way that's, you know, truly transformational right now. You talked about voting with your, your dollars. Uh, we also have a presidential election. What do you think is more important for someone to do to support organic stuff and to buy organic foods or to vote for one candidate or another? I I, uh, I I think they're both important. Um, <laughs> that was I, a politician's I, answer. Come on, man. Yeah, it, it is. I actually, I think that um, ultimately, I think you know, I think what's interesting is so we work with uh, Environmental Working Group EWG. And yeah, I'm a supporter her, as well. Uh, Ken yeah. is amazing, and I, I heard a speech he gave, and it was really interesting. You know, in the '60s, the government drove all sorts of amazing innovation around Clean Water Act and 
all sorts of things that we're in, like we just take for granted today that are part of the bedrock of of how we um, maintain and manage our society and our economy. None of those types of regulations can get passed today. Period. Like we have, we live in a dysfunctional political system where even the most rational uh, ideas just get completely polarized. And so I think we're in a place now where innovation used to be driven uh, in the 50s and the 60s from the government top down. And I think we're in this really exciting place now where innovation is being driven from the bottom up, from people voting with their dollars. Yeah. And you have companies like Coca-Cola and McDonald's and you know, all scrambling to try to figure out how to stay relevant in the 21st century to a consumer that has a different set of values than, the, than they position themselves for. Where you spend your money will likely have a bigger impact than whichever person you vote for. Right. Uh, in a major election like that. And and it didn't used to be that way, but it sure looks to be that way to me. And I, I say that I live in Canada, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> but but that, that's my perception uh, of how things work now. And I, I, I think every time I spend a dollar, like, like, where's this dollar going? And does it go to something that I want to have happen? And if not, can I spend that dollar somewhere else? Because that every, every, every one of those dollars is a vote and it's probably... Um, it, it's probably no more or less expensive of a vote than the other ones. And, and, it's, and it's interesting, you know, we are in a time where, um, particularly if you've got some educational access and means, you know, you're going to use a phone and a computer that was probably made in very compromised labor conditions. You know, most of our phones were made in, you know, really devastating circumstances. And, uh, you know, we are inherently participating in a global economy now. Uh, that doesn't represent the true costs of making the items that we consume. And I think that's one of the great challenges that we face, uh, which, you know, voting with our dollars and transparency is going to drive a lot more awareness around what are the true costs of the products we consume, uh, not only to ourselves, but to uh, other people and other communities and the environment. It, it gets a little more complex, too. Like, what would happen if a company approached you and they had organic produce that was raised by prisoners who were not paid a living wage right what would you do yeah we wouldn't take that i mean that's 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 completely <laughs> but, but wouldn't that be better than gmo crops produced by prisoners which is happening in the u.s right now right yeah it, it, it's it's such an ethical slippery slope by the way i would i would do the same thing i say guys that's not cool privatized prisons not okay yeah uh and and you know using prisoners as labor like that no not okay yeah. uh, but it, it it's uh it, it's an ethically slippery slope, and so what I I hope that people listening to it is, is they realize you know it, it matters where you buy your stuff, it matters which stuff you buy, and, and it matters way more than you think because it comes down to are the people you're buying it from going to to take what what's left after all of the costs are done, and are they going to do good things with it? Are they going to act like like Costco? They, they pay much more than other retailers, and they have good benefits. You have a philosophical decision that says, you know, your employees all get the same benefits you do as a CEO, right? Like, like, does it matter to someone who's you know, buying a jar of peanut butter online? Well, it should matter. And if people realize that they don't have to spend more, then it's basically a free thing you get when you buy it. And, and right. that's my perspective. Every time I spend something, I, I get that for free. Uh, and it, it goes down to if you're going to go into the store, I, I go to the register with an, with an employee there instead of the self-serve checkout. You know what? I like jobs. Like I want people around me to have jobs. 
Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. when they have jobs, they're happier. And when no one has a job, people generally steal stuff from each other, and it's not a very nice place to live. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's I mean, that's one of the challenges with the, the whole you know sharing economy now. There's so yeah. much disruption. Uh, technology is going to disrupt traditional jobs in a much more quickly than they can shift to new types of jobs, and it's going to create all sorts of uh, interesting and dynamic and, and potentially dangerous populist strands uh, that cause all sorts of uh, you know dynamic issues for us as as a society. And I think yeah. you know I think the the thing that is so exciting though, back to the the voting with dollars piece, is that you know we are in a world where the biggest companies have quarterly earning reports, and it doesn't actually take much of a contraction in their business to send them into really deep, profound uh, hand wringing. And like you know, now we're seeing the first organic hamburger in Germany from McDonald's, and we're seeing you know General Mills has now announced that its entire supply chain is going to be non-GMO, and Campbell's Soup is going non-GMO. So there's there's it doesn't actually take that much of a slowdown. Yeah. Or, or a, a decrease in revenue and profit for these big companies to suddenly see that they actually need to wake up to the demands of this consumer that is gaining steam and using the internet to educate and empower themselves and, and to vote with their dollars. That is, uh, it's very true. And I've seen such rapid such rapid change as a 20% revenue fall for McDonald's. Like I wanted to just dance in the street. The funny thing is, I don't see McDonald's like when I drive down the street, uh, my brain stopped identifying that as a place to eat. So the, the logo doesn't have an effect on me. The, the store doesn't. And people say it's by McDonald's. I I go, where's McDonald's? Like it's not a landmark because it, I literally learned to not see it. I don't know how you recover from that. My, my kids, they, they, they know that that's not a place you go for food. Uh, One of our, uh, one of our nannies, decided that she wanted to go to McDonald's to get, and yes, this is embarrassing, to get coffee. It's because she wasn't, there's bulletproof coffee in my house all the time, right? Right. Uh, but um, she was out and about with the kids. So I wasn't that, that happy about it, but she, she took the kids to the drive-thru and they're like, you can drive through to get food? Oh my God. Because like, like, we don't do fast food. Right. And so that she rolls the window down and my daughter, who's maybe five at the time, she, she sees that you could talk to this, this speaker and our nanny says, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd like a coffee or whatever. And Anna just can't help herself. She goes, I'd like a, a poopy chemical latte, please. Oh, that's which, awesome. which to her was like the worst thing you could possibly ask for. Right. Because she knows that like they're, that McDonald's puts chemicals in food. And, and that is the brand value of McDonald's to, to my kids and every one of her kids at her friends at school, all of them, same thing. McDonald's does not equate food. It doesn't equate fun. It doesn't equate happiness. And you know what? I'm not sure that selling an organic hamburger is ever going to recover from that. Like they might have destroyed their brand by destroying the ecosystem and by doing all the bad stuff they did. And maybe the brand will recover. You know, maybe they'll do enough good that it'll recover. It's going to take an awful lot for me to want to ever eat there again. I, I just yeah. don't have a fundamental trust there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think, I think there's, a, there's a real credibility gap there. That said, you know, you look at the way and, you know, obviously Chipotle has been going through massive issues with, uh, you know, the breakouts that it's been having. But they've invested in a way that's really differentiated. And I think uh, it's, it has translated um, as a brand. 
Um, and they, you yeah. know, they're 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 investing in farms and uh, and and organic and regenerative agriculture. And I think that's you know translated to them as a brand. And and ironically, they used to be owned by McDonald's, and McDonald's <laughs> sub- sold Chipotle, and Chipotle got religion on you know uh, uh, appealing to an aspirational consumer. Uh, and it's really you know it's really driven a lot of success, notwithstanding the recent issues on their breakouts. Are you a fan of Clayton Christensen, the disruptive technology author? Are you familiar with his work and strategy? I'm not. But so I'm, I'm, always, I'm a fan of disruption in general. So I, conceptually, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a fan. I had disruptive technology in almost all of my job descriptions throughout my time in, in Silicon Valley. Like, like it was always something I worked with. And Clayton, and I actually got to work with this consulting company once. He's a famous Harvard guy who coined the term disruptive innovation. And what he, and you'd probably enjoy his book. I forget what it's called, but it's his big book about it. What he did is he, he looked at the history of hard drive manufacturers in Silicon Valley. And over, it, because it's such a, a fast cycle there, you can study things that happen in other industries. He started out by looking at railroads and, and how railroads disrupted each other and got disrupted and sort of went through tech. And in, in hard drives, what happens is these upstart young Turks come along and 18 months later, they're buying the companies who said, ah, that stuff will never work, right? It, literally 18 months later, and it happens over and over. And he studied why does disruption happen and what I'm seeing is the stuff that I cut my teeth on in Silicon Valley, where you know, the telephone companies got disrupted by data centers, by cloud computing and social media, and, and all this stuff happens. It's happening in food right now. And like companies like, like Thrive, companies out there who, like Chipotle, they, they came out of nowhere, and the big guys are kind of scratching their head going, what do we do? We don't even know what to do. And well, what you do is, is your revenues decline a bunch and then you get acquired and then they gut your storefront and put their logo on, on your store. And I, I think some of that's going to happen over the next few years in a way that no one would ever predict, except Clayton, he would predict it. So right, that, that'd be right. a good book I, for you to read. And I think one of the interesting facts is you, know, you look at like uh, Whole Foods as the largest retailer that people recognize um, in the health and wellness movement. Yeah. I, you know, now there's other people like Kroger and uh, Costco that are in the system, but um, you know, their market cap is $10 billion uh, as the, you know, one of the largest retailers and the most famous retailer for healthy food. And they've really galvanized the movement in a way, like they've had their challenges and their problems um, and they've got their reputation, but they really brought the movement together in a really powerful way. And we're all the beneficiaries of that now with our new models. And I think uh, you look at their market cap relative to say Chipotle, you know, which is one of a dozen fast food, uh, you know, companies in this country. And it has, you know, two and a half times the market cap, $25 billion. Uh, one of several fast food companies in this country is two and a half times the size of one of the largest health food providers in this country. Uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's really an interesting fact in terms of where the market is going and how much opportunity there is uh, for this thing to shift, you know, uh, the, the sales for natural and organic products is, you know, 50 to $75 billion a year for the food itself growing at 15% per year. And even at that size, it's still only 4% of the national CPG economy. So, you know, even at that size, only 4% of total consumer packaged goods sales is natural and organic products. And, you know, that again, just shows you how this is going to go over the next 10 or 20 years people are going to move towards accessing food that is healthy and putting products on their bodies which are non-toxic and i think you know we're we're in a really unique 
blessed situation to be able to facilitate that journey in a way that's authentic and meaningful and empowering to people. Um, and I, I, that's to me, super exciting. It, it is a, a really cool time uh, to be working in, in this, this strange area of, of providing the right food to people so that they feel amazing, which, which kind of goes beyond health food. Uh, but it's, it's, it wasn't, it wasn't this easy without the internet, without the cloud, without right. all the technology that supports right. it. Now it's, it's really cool. And, and now's the time for that. So th- this disruption is a lot of fun and certainly what you're doing with Thrive is, is a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I have a question for you that, that you probably would have predicted if you've listened to any of the shows before. Uh, if someone came to you tomorrow, Kanar, and, and they're like, look, I want to perform better at every single thing I do in my life based on all the stuff you know, not just your, your business. What are the three most important things I should do? What advice would you have? Uh, I mean, my, my uh, important pieces are uh, getting enough sleep, um, you know, courageously facing my fears every day, um, and, uh, and uh, eating well and getting exercise. You know, and I, I feel like if I do uh, those three things, um, I kind of slipped in a fourth there by uh, eating yeah, eating right. well and getting exercise. You know, that's it sounds like basic stuff, but you know, just just like uh, you know, just the simple thing of like eating simple foods, chewing it well, not eating complex meals, uh, not eating two hours before you go to bed, uh, going to bed early, getting enough sleep. Uh, and then, and then really doing the interpersonal work of like, you know, like we all have issues that we're confronted with, uh, in our life. And, um, and you know, the opportunity for us is to meet those, uh, those issues with love and courage and recognize that, you know, we're not going to get over them instantly and it's a process, but, uh, to the extent that we can meet those, uh, things that we're afraid of, uh, we will be better, stronger human beings that can add a lot more value to the world. Very well said. Thanks a lot for being on the show. People can go to thrivemarket.com to learn more about this and to get some food at a, at a good discount. Have an awesome day, Gunnar. Yeah, it's great. Great to be with you. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Go on to iTunes and click, hey, I like this show, so then other people can find it. There's some sort of rating review process. I forget what it is. But if you go in there and say, you know, Bulletproof Radio is helping me. It, that will help others. We just crossed 30 million downloads and climbing. That is 65 entire human lifetimes, if I did my math right, depending on how long you believe you're going to live. So it is my responsibility to not have murdered 65 human beings by making crappy content. I put everything I have into the show for you so that you can learn something and walk away after you hear every show, knowing something you didn't know before that's going to help you perform better. Have a beautiful day and thank you. Get tons more original info to make it easier to kick more ass at life when you sign up with a free newsletter at bulletproofexec.com. Stay bulletproof. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. 
Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.